0: How should we understand the appearances of the king in Book 5 of the Hebrew Psalter? Ever since Gerald H. Wilson's landmark work, The Editing of the Hebrew Psalter, in 1985, some have interpreted the failure of the Davidic covenant in Psalm 89 as signaling its replacement by a hope in the direct intervention of the Lord. That is, without any further role for a Davidic king. Others, however, insist that Book 5 marks the return of the king, pointing to a renewed hope in the Davidic covenant. Join us as we speak with Ian J. Vallancourt about his recent monograph, The Multifaceted Savior of Psalms 110 and 118, a canonical exegesis, in which he seeks to demonstrate that Book 5 focuses Israel's expectation on an eschatological figure of salvation who encompasses many hoped-for figures across the Old Testament, including the king, in one person. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Dr. Ian J. Valencourt serves as Associate Professor of Old Testament and Hebrew at Heritage Theological Seminary. He earned a Bachelor of Theology from Tyndale College, an MTS from Tyndale Seminary, and a PhD from the University of St. Michael's College, Toronto. He is also an ordained pastor in the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptists in Canada and served in senior and teaching pastoral roles for 14 years. He's published articles and book reviews in several academic journals. We are featuring here his first monograph on the vision of the Messiah from Psalms 110 and 118. Ian, welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies. Thank you. So, Ian, what first sparked your interest in the Psalms?
1: Well, uh, in my first year of Bible college, uh, I had a positive and negative experience with the Psalms or kind of teaching on the Psalms in the classroom. Uh, I was a pretty new Christian. I'd gone away... Um, with the goal of just knowing the Lord more. And uh, I had one teacher in particular that was really impactful and um, taught us an inductive Bible study. And as a new Christian, this was really formative for me. And uh, one of the little symbols he told us to put in the margins of our Bibles is a little musical note if if it's a song we sing in church. So I did that as a brand-new Christian. And as I was just reading for personal growth uh, the Bible, I found in the Psalms, there's all these musical notes that I was writing in the margins. And even in evangelical, baptistic circles, we weren't kind of Scottish Presbyterian Psalm singers, but I realized how much we'd been, I'd been singing the Psalms without knowing it. Um, negatively, uh, a professor told us um, anecdotally that whenever he did his own personal Bible reading and prayer in the book of Psalms, seemed to be dry seasons in his life. And he concluded from that, that the Psalms aren't fit for personal devotions and Bible reading. And this annoyed me. <laughs> and I set out to prove him wrong. And so just kind of that positive and negative from the same professor, uh, nonetheless, uh, both, both comments. Um, but he said, if you ever read the Psalms in your personal Bible reading, read something else too, because that's where the substance will come from. Well, over the years, uh, I continued to grow and uh, I, I kind of discovered, I really resonated with C.S. Lewis and discovered that I had kind of a similar personality with, as C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis was a deep feeler. He wasn't a high T, if you're a Myers-Briggs kind of person. He was a feeler. But he loved the life of the mind and similar to me. And uh, so I was, I was naturally drawn to po- poetry and in general. And in the Bible, the Psalms were a natural fit. So over the years, I'm um, drawn to that. And I, I began to hear grandiose claims about the, the the book of Psalms that were really compelling to me. So Luther calling the Psalms a little Bible and all the theology of the Bible is contained in the Psalms. Well, that, that sounded a lot different than that first year Bible college prof that said it's not fit for the devotions and fit for Bible reading. And just this idea that, all the theology in the entire Bible is found in this one book, and its emotive poetry. So that that just draw me drew me to it, and I, I want to go deeper in this. And then Calvin's statement on the Psalms that as an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, and so there isn't a part of the soul that's left out in the uh, in the book of Psalms. So this life of the mind, theology in its totality, and this emotive kind of anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Dr- continued to draw me to the book. Um, after seminary, I was a solo pastor for six years. And over the years, um, I preached on the Psalms, numer- the individual psalms numerous times. So um, I remember one Easter season, I preached on um, Palm Sunday on Psalm 118, Good Friday on Psalm 22, Easter Sunday on Psalm 16. And I just, I was hooked. I loved I love kind of this Christological look at the Psalms, and um, during that time as a pastor, that was my first contact with um, Miles Van Pelt, um, his BiblicalTraining.org lectures on Old Testament theology, where he argued for a structural logic for the way the canon fits together. And it's now reflected in, his, in the introduction of his book, A Biblical Theological Introduction to the Old Testament. Um, kind of, he edited the volume, RTS professors contributed to it. And in his introduction, he summarized a lot of what was in those lectures that I can still picture myself with my big iPod classic, with my earbuds in going for exercise, going for long walks and just being blown away by this idea of a structural logic for the Canon. And it made a lot of sense to me and I'd never heard it before. Um, And then during those years as a pastor, I read Stephen Dempster's Dominion and Dynasty, A Theology of the Hebrew Bible, in that uh, New Studies in Biblical Theology series, edited by D.A. Carson. And again, the whole Old Testament had a structural logic for Dempster, but then he dove into the particulars a lot more. And he has 10 pages on the Book of Psalms in that book, and it just blew my mind. It was just so helpful to me. So I later learned... um, uh, John Salehammer used this language of the canonicler, the person or people responsible for assembling the canon. Jim Hamilton echoed that language. Roger Beckwith is another one. There's so many names I could uh, of individuals I could um, bring up, but early in my kind of—this the, the, kind of fed into the Psalms. This all fed into the Psalms, and we'll see the structural logic of the book of Psalms itself. Um, all these things helped me. Well, uh I started the PhD after that pastorate and um early on I wanted to do a I wanted to do uh you know, coursework stage North American model of PhD. I was at the University of Toronto and uh I wanted to do a course on the Psalms. There wasn't one gonna be offered in my couple years of coursework, so I approached um the guy who usually teaches it, Michael Klarchuk at Regis College. He's now um chaplain at the Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome, actually. And I approached him about a directed reading and research course on the Psalms. And um he accepted. And we start we talked. And a friend of mine had mentioned the work of Gerald. He said, Oh, you want to do structure of the Psalms? Have you read Wilson? Gerald Wilson. And I had never heard of Gerald Wilson. I was new at this. And and so I got his 1985 monograph from the Bible. Uh sorry, from the Bible, from the library. And I was hooked. I remember sitting at my kid's soccer game and whenever my kids were off, I'd look down and be reading this monograph and I was just absolutely hooked by Wilson's work and I absolutely compelling. I want to go deeper in this and that's probably a signal that that's a good thing to write one's dissertation on um, and choose as one's um, scholar, like just area of, of scholarly study primary area. I also did a, um, so anyway, for that course with Dr. Klarchuk, um, I wrote a paper on the Messiah and eschatology and the shape of the Psalms. And I I found I was really liking Wilson and I was disagreeing with points he was making. And it was bothering me that, okay, certain people are correcting and interacting, but why aren't they saying it in this way? And I I wasn't realizing that at the time, but I was actually finding my contribution along the way, um, It hadn't dawned on me yet that I could make a contribution. I was new at this, you know. Uh, I took a history of interpretation, directed reading and research course with Marion Taylor at Wycliffe College, University of Toronto. And uh, for that, I wrote a 65-page paper on the history of interpreting the psalm superscriptions. And again, I was seeing structural logic and um, just a rich history of interpreting that I wasn't aware of before. Uh, I took a Book of the Twelve course with Christopher Seitz at Wycliffe, and just this idea of originally separate, short books being brought together into a whole was really huge for me. And then I took a History of Interpreting the Psalms course with Christopher Seitz, and just this idea, to, uh, uh, this impulse to discover structural logic in the Book of Psalms um, what I learned from that course, it wasn't invented in 1985 or 83 whenever Wilson defended um, or um, by David Howard, who was working on his stuff when Wilson was as well. And his work was published later. Um, Jamie Grant and David Mitchell both cite a quote from Augustine and Augustine said, the arrangement of the Psalms, which seems to me to contain a secret of great mystery has not yet been revealed to me. So this whole idea that, Augustine was saying there is structural logic in the Psalms, there is theology there, but I just don't know what it is. I want to go deeper. And so that was really compelling early on. Uh, Cites, Cites himself, I think this was in um, seminar discussions, he he cited Cassiodorus, um, Aquinas, also frequently arguing for structural logic in the book of Psalms, um, reading Um, Franz Dalich's commentary, he paid attention to keyword links between adjoining Psalms. Um, as a as a as a good Baptist, I went back and read Alexander McLaren, Good Baptist, and 1826 to 1910. And uh I just, you know, just for fun, I opened up his work on the Psalms. I read the first entry and I found that in his exposition, the very first entry was on Psalms 1 and 150, verse 6 the first and last verses of the book of Psalms. And, and he wrote in that little essay, it's not by accident that they stand where they do. The first and last verses of the whole collection, enclosing it all, as it were, within a golden ring and bending round to meet each other. And so, wow, um, here's another guy saying a similar thing. Um, I, I, I'd i be a little wary if it was invented in 1985 and everything you know everything is new, 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 but here's history of interpretation. Uh, David Howard's work—I'll uh, just point you guys, the listener, to David Howard's work. He's he's written um he's written great essays on um, Psalms research and summarizing Psalms research, and he points to others in the history of interpretation, some Jewish scholars and and others. So this all snowballed, and the compelling features of work I was reading drew me in, and some disagreements with some particulars. You know, uh, drew me to look for people who have um, maybe have given adequate answers, and in one place in particular, I wasn't seeing the answer that seemed most logical to me. And without realizing it, um, I discovered the hook for my doctoral dissertation, actually, and which is now the monograph we're discussing on the podcast right now. So, um, more on that hook later, I'm sure. But before I move on. Uh, I'll just also mention three contributions of Bruce Waltke that were really helpful for me early on. Uh, one of the, the first claim that Waltke made was that the superscriptions of the Psalms, the titles of David when he, you know, Nathan the prophet rebuked him, uh, these kinds of titles, or just short ones, um, a mictam of David, these kinds of things, that they were a part of the final form we should consider in interpretation. So Walkie actually argues that the superscriptions are early and reflect what is really the case, so that David really did write Psalm 110, and I tend to agree with him. But even those who don't hold to that need to recognize that a canonical reading of the Book of Psalms, which is thinking about final form of the Book of Psalms, ought to take the superscriptions seriously, that this is the way they were meant to be read. Um, another uh, Walkie's article on second Walkie's article on a canonical process approach to the book of Psalms was really helpful to me early on. And, um, according to this view, each Psalm has an original compositional setting, but it's later use was adapted for a new setting, like early, early collections of Psalms associated with the first temple. And then Walkie talks about its final redaction into what is now the final form of the Hebrew Psalter and it bears editorial fingerprints before its use in the New Testament, offers a fourth interpretive horizon. So he has this language of four interpretive horizons, original setting, early collections, final form, and New Testament use. And third and finally from Waltke, um, he had a quote about the Messiah and the shape of the Book of Psalms that I I just found really compelling. So I'm just going to read it for us, if I may, Michael. Waltke wrote, the concept of Messiah was also developed in the editing of the Psalter. Israel draped the magnificent royal robes, royal psalms, as robes on each successive king, but generation after generation the shoulders of the reigning monarch proved too narrow and the and the robes slipped off to be draped on his successor. Finally in exile, Israel was left without a king and with a wardrobe of royal robes in their hymnody. On the basis of I Am's unconditional covenants with Abraham and David, the faithful know that Israel's history ends in triumph, not in tragedy. The prophets, as noted, envisioned a coming king who would fulfill the promise of these covenants. Haggai and Zechariah, who prophesied about 520 BC when the returnees had no king, fueled the prophetic expectation of the hoped-for king by applying it to Zerubbabel, son of David, and to Joshua, the high priest. When this hope fell through, Israel pinned their hope on a future Messiah. It was in that context, when Israel had no king, that the Psalter was edited with reference to the king. Accordingly, the editors of the Psalter must have re-signified the Psalms from the historical king and draped them on the shoulders of the Messiah the Anointed One began to be v- viewed as the Messiah at the end of time. In short, in light of the exile and the loss of kingship, the editors colored the entire Psalter with a
0: messianic hue. End quote. So that was just really helpful for me. So was background for talking about your recent book, Orientus, on the idea of reading the Psalter with something like a narrative flow.
1: Okay, yeah, so... The idea here, again, with Waltke is that the original poet may have composed his work, an individual psalm, but the early collections of psalms and then the shaping of the final form in the book of psalms was done with intentionality and purpose by an editor or editors, we don't know. And uh, the, the focus of my work is not on the shaping, the process shaping, but the actual final form. What do we have in the final form? Uh, so in the discussions, scholars generally agree uh, Psalms 1 and 2 serve as a gateway to the book of Psalms. So you, you hear gateway language um, in work by Robert Cole and um, Glenn Taylor, my supervisor at the University of Toronto, wrote an article with that language in the title. And the, the idea of the Word of God, Psalm 1, and the Son of God, the King, Psalm 2, as dual entry points for entering the book of Psalms. And if the book of Psalms is Tehelim praises, um, the, entry, the dual entryway into the life of praise is the word of God and the son of God, or the king, the anointed one. And so we got Psalms 1 and 2. Um, books, uh, according to this discussion, books 1 and 2 of the Psalms, so Psalm 1 to 72, or 3 to 72, depending on who you are, Um They're an early Davidic collection, and they focus more on lament in the midst of hard times, but also on the Yahweh's covenant faithfulness. So um, in this discussion, the lament Psalms are clustered more heavily at the beginning of the book of Psalms, although they do appear at the end, and the um, praise Psalms are clustered more heavily at the end of the book of Psalms, although they, they do appear at the beginning, Kind of like the book of Isaiah has oracles of judgment more clustered early and salvation, oracles of salvation clustered more late, but they, they both appear in, in either section of, of the book of Isaiah. Similar thing with the Psalms. Um, I'm also going to back up and say um, Psalms 1 and 2, um, there is kind of, uh, there is evidence that they were actually maybe separate compositions, but intentionally linked Um, by the editors and not just simply um, thematically word of God, son of God makes sense to me. Let's just do it. But this ishrae blessed is the first word of Psalm one, and it appears in the very last stanza verse of Psalm two. So there's this, there's this um, bracketed by blessing and enveloped by blessing and uh, words like Haga um, in Psalm one Um, it's meant to meditate. Um, it's translated to meditate on the Torah of Yahweh, but hagah in Psalm two is the same Hebrew word is used, but it's, it's the, the nation's murmuring against Yahweh and his anointed. And the idea there is that meditation in the ancient world wasn't thinking in your head. It was mumbling under your breath. So, um, that word haggah is used in reference to actually meditating on the Torah but in, in Psalm 2, it's you're murmuring under your breath, kind of like an angry kid at the Messiah and his anointed. And there's a, there's a lot of keyword links that I, I won't get into all of it now, but there is actual a, a lot there, Psalms 1 and 2, beyond thematically. So again, books 1 and 2, early Davidic collection, lots of um, lament, uh, lots of clusters of lament, weeping David, my friend Andy Witt calls it um, in his dissertation. Um, so we got Weeping David, and it ends with um, a royal psalm, a psalm of Solomon. And, and uh, Psalm 72 ends, books one and two, with um the prayers of David, son of Jesse are here ended. So you've got this little editorial note that's added in. Uh, book three begins, uh, or book three is largely referred to as the exilic book of Psalms. It's a it's a it's the darkest book in the Psalter. Um Psalm 73 to 89. It's the shortest as well. And um scholars in this camp, in this, in this canonical reading of the Psalms, typically think, okay, book three, um the the Psalms were either written to reflect on the exile or re-signify. You know, it's a it's a it's a lament psalm from an earlier time period, but let's 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 reflect let's use that to reflect on our current as Israel, exilic condition. So uh, book three ends with Psalms 88 and 89. And Psalm 88 is the darkest Psalm in the Psalter. It, It ends this way, verse 13 and following. But I, O Yahweh, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Yahweh, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And then Psalm 89 ends this way. Adonai, where is your chesed, your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Adonai, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Yahweh, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. And that's that's how Psalm 89 ends. Well, in Book 4 of the Psalms, um, we have this general theme, and this is Gerald Wilson's. A major contribution to Psalm study. Yahweh who reigns is faithful to his covenant. So, book four begins with a Psalm of Moses, Psalm 90. Book four is 90 to 106. And it begins with this Psalm of Moses. And for Wilson, it's as though the book of Psalms is communicating even if there's no king on the throne of David, God has made a covenant and it stretches back before David. So, let's insert a Psalm of Moses next. And Psalm 90 begins, a prayer of Moses, the man of God, Adonai, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to the dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday, when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So just jumping out, that was the end of verse four. Um, in other words, we are in exile, but you are faithful. And it may feel long to us, but a thousand years is like a day in your sight. And the covenant goes way back before David. It goes way back to Moses. And we could say even earlier. So, but the focus in book four, and this is again, is Gerald Wilson's major contribution. The focus in book four are these clustered Yahweh reigns Psalms. And the These Yahweh Reigns psalms, they they focus on the fact that Yahweh reigns over all. And then Gerald Wilson's hook is, even when David does not. So if the Davidic covenant is promised that there will be a king on the throne of David forever, um, Yahweh reigns, book four, even when David doesn't. And book four ends in Psalm 106 with this plea of the exiles for deliverance. And then that brings us to Book 5, and it opens with Psalm 107 as an answer to the plea. And Psalm 107 talks about Yahweh's gathering repentant returnees from far off. And if you look at the language in Psalm 107, I haven't read this in other people, maybe it is, but I often think of Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 to 10. Um, I often tell my students um, at Heritage Theological Seminary that um, Deuteronomy 28 Blessings for covenant keeping, curses for covenant breaking. Deuteronomy 31 to 10, restoration for covenant repentance. So this idea of a promise for restoration, even when we're in exile because of our own sin, this idea that if we repent, even when we're, we're in exile because Yahweh put us here in response to our sin, It's theologically grounded to think that there could be a return, because Deuteronomy 30, one to 10 anticipated it and promised it, and so this restoration for covenant repentance, and I think it's pretty clear that Psalm 107 um, is written in light of that theology. Now, we can touch on disagreement about the message of Book 5 next, um, but before I do that, I'm going to mention that the the Book of Psalms ends with a five-psalm doxology, and so if it, if it began, if the book of Psalms began with h- highly clustered laments, um, and it, near the end it's more highly clustered praise psalms and dox- doxological refrains, and if each book of the Psalms, I didn't mention this, but one, two, three, four, each ends with this blessed be Yahweh forever and ever, amen kind of doxological refrain, Book five ends, and the whole book of Psalms ends with five Psalms of doxology, and it's, it's praising Yahweh. It's this Godward praise, so much so that it, by Psalm 150, um, self is forgotten, and it's just we're wrapped up in the greatness of God and worshiping him. So um, that's a general kind of take without, without discussing book five. That's a general take on the shape of the Psalms.
0: Ian, tell us about the scholarly disagreement over book 5 of the Psalms.
1: Okay, well, the discussion on book 5, the discussion of book 5 tends to go in two separate directions. So, a lot of people have followed Gerald Wilson, and he argued that in book 3 of the in book 3 of the Psalms, uh the covenant with David was seen as broken and failed. And so for Wilson, books 1 to 3 are primarily concerned with the Davidic king and kingship psalms are placed at prominent positions throughout book one to three. Uh, for Wilson, books four to five have much greater emphasis on wisdom and a personal approach to Yahweh. And if David appears in, the, in books four and five for Wilson, um, he's, he's, he's not reigning as king so much as an example um, for the individual to follow And Wilson viewed the wisdom psalms at the seams of the later books as evidence of this primarily sapiential wisdom agenda for those who gave the Psalter its final shape. And I'll also mention that Wilson went so far as to set forth competing redactional frames between books one to three and four to five of the psalms. So he believed the king to be primary in books one to three and the redactor, there were two different redactors. And so the redactor of books 1 to 3 edited books 1 to 3 with a focus on the king and then in um and then placed royal psalms in strategic positions in order to emphasize his role but in book 4 and 5 he believed the redactors later redactors had a different agenda than the redactors of 1 to 3 and it's a competing frame and for him the king faded into the background and he was set forth as an example of wisdom and a personal approach to Yahweh with the hope of salvation, um, was placed in direct intervention of Yahweh instead of through the agency of his king. So that's, that's Gerald Wilson. Um, and a lot of what, what he said there about books four and five, I thought, really? What about? And I just found myself doing that. Really? What about? And yes, we have this Psalm 89 moment where the crown of King David is in the dust, but I'm not prepared to say the covenant with David is broken and failed, or I'm not prepared to talk about the apparent failure of the Davidic covenant. And and to be fair to Wilson, he says he he argued um that the first Davidic frame, um, first redactional frame extends into the second frame with the placement of I forget which Psalm even, into the into the near the end. And the second redactional frame is extended into the first by the placement of Psalm 1 as a header for the entire Psalms collection. And uh and also to be fair to Wilson, um, he his later work um did talk about Messiah, eschatology, shape of the Psalms, and um, I, I sense a real humility in his writing, especially his later writing. He, he passed away suddenly from a heart attack. Um, I, I in the early two thousands, I think it was Oh six or seven. I, I forget exactly the date. And, uh, it's, um, but I really sense a humility in his writing that as he's engaging at scholarly conferences, as people are critiquing his work, he's taking it seriously. And, and I would see little statements that are made that hinted that he's he's rethinking particulars, but he's not ready to go all the way yet. And, and, uh, and I'm not at all claiming that I've un- uncovered or others have uncovered what the position Wilson was ready to come to himself. But I am, but I do want to, um, not only honor Gerald Wilson as, um, an, an incredible pioneer in this field and someone I'm very, whose work I'm very thankful for, but also, um, h- uh, that humility piece in his later writing, he's willing to listen and think through things. So, Really helpful. So anyway, uh, portrayal of the king, book five for Wilson is um, covenant is broken, apparent failure, of the Davidic covenant, and David is a, an example of wisdom and a personal approach to Yahweh. The verb malak, to reign, is not used of David and, um, and for, for Wilson, and I believe it's radaf is, but it's softer for Wilson and and, and this kind of thing. The other side of the debate, scholars like David Howard and Michael Snearly have argued that that in Book 5, the editors of the Psalms, the, the ones that gathered the, the individual Psalms into collections and uh, even re-signified them for new context here, um, far from minimizing the role of the king in Book 5, Psalms 107 to 150 signal a return of the king. So Michael Sneerly wins the prize for coolest monograph title, um, The Return of the King. Like I, I was so dejected when I saw that. I just said, no one's gonna beat that. That's just an awesome title. And he he argues for um for that very thing in book five in his monograph. Excellent TNT Clark monograph. Um and David Howard's um really helpful to read because he was doing his doctoral work. When Gerald Wilson was, and he developed his methodology apart from Wilson and and then Gerald Wilson's work was published while Howard was still studying, so he had the benefit of developing his own methodology apart from Wilson, and then reading Wilson and incorporating it into his final work and then the monograph version of it wasn't published till I think ninety seven so he had you know twelve more years to think through and update and and refine. But um, David Howard um, argues for a similar thing. So Howard argues that since Royal Davidic Psalm 144 is followed by a psalm that emphasizes Yahweh's kingship, interpreters must take this as a sign that the earthly expression of Yahweh's reign was clearly meant to be the Davidic king. So in Howard's view, earthly and heavenly expressions of Yahweh's kingdom stand together as messages of hope at the beginning of the book of Psalms and at the very end, 144 and 145. And, you know, and Sneerly was a student of Howard's. And Michael Sneerly, and they co-wrote, by the way, um, the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible. It used to be called the Zondervan NIV Study Bible. Um, the notes on the Psalms, and Snearly did, I think, mostly book five. But, you you know, Snearly argued in his monograph, the consistent trajectory of the entire Psalter storyline is, Yahweh is king, he has appointed an earthly vice-regent who represents his heavenly rule on earth. The earthly vice-regent and his people travail against the rebellious of the earth. So he sees a real unity with um, the King, Yahweh's work, and the people. They're all striving for the same purpose. So I'd add that, you know Wilson thought of the Davidic Covenant as having failed in book three and fading into the background in books four and five. Um, just picking up again that Deuteronomy 31 to 10. What about that? This hope of ex- eschatological um, restoration. Even in the midst of the tempor- temporary cessation of the House of David, so another one who's contributed is David Mitchell, and and uh, he argues that the Psalter was shaped within an eschatologically conscious milieu. The House of David was in decline. There's a it's a time of growing eschatological hope. He he thought that certain Psalms 272 110 seem to be of an intrinsically ultimate character uh, because they describe people or events in, in such glowing terms that far exceed the reality of any historical king or battle. And uh, for, for for Mitchell, the Second Temple period's inclusion of royal psalms in the Psalter suggests that the editor intended them to refer to a future Messiah king. And the fact that the Messianic Psalms are placed in prominent positions in the Psalter was a deliberate means of having them infect the interpretation of the whole. And uh Mitchell also notes that this hypothesis is, is in line with the eschatological interpretation of the Psalms in the Qumran, New Testament, Rabbinic, and patristic literature. That all resonated with me. Um so, in short, the question is whether the covenant with David has been broken and failed in book three and book five exhibits hope in the direct intervention of Yahweh apart from the Davidic King, or if book four, Michael sneerly signals a return of the King. Then, you know, David's been off the throne, but there's a return of the King. And, and some even suggest that, um, in the final form of the book of Psalms, Psalm 72, I think it's verse 20, the prayers of David, son of Jesse are here ended. um, some might even suggest that the David that appears later is the greater son of David to come, and uh, maybe that's going too far. But I, I throw that out there for free. So um, I spend the first two chapters of the of the monograph discussing various viewpoints on this issue in
0: detail, and I chart my own way forward. Now, how does your monograph approach this issue?
1: Okay. Um, well, I begin by I begin by recognizing that I have the luxury of access to incredible scholarship on the book of Psalms that's been done in the wake of Wilson's 1985 monograph. So whether I'm agreeing or disagreeing with them, I am blessed to be able to read Wilson, McCann, the Class A. Walford, Zenger, Gose, Leuenberger, Ballhorn, Mays, Howard, Sneerly, so many others. And this incredible body of work is largely on larger chunks in the book of Psalms. So Wilson's in the whole book, and he's comparing it to Qumran. Pretty lofty um, and incredible work. And, uh, you know, Lewenberger's books four and five, just to pull him as as an example, and Sneerly is all of book five. So because of this work that's been done on the macro structure of the Psalms as a whole, or on book five as a whole, which is huge, Psalm 107 to 150, that allowed me to kind of test some claims by drilling down deep into two key Psalms in book five. So the first thing I do in the monograph is to summarize the work of Childs, Brevard Childs, as a pioneer in the field, and then Wilson as a student at Yale during Childs' time there, and Um, Wilson is the one again, who really kicked off the more recent discussion on the canonical shape of the book of Psalms. Um, then I summarize the key responses to Wilson's view in book five. And I I suggest that it would be most helpful. And here's my hook to broaden the question and narrow the scope of inquiry. So first, um, scholars have tended to interact with the question As it was first framed by Gerald Wilson, and so they've discussed the portrayal of the king in Book Five. But I suggest that instead of asking about the king, that we're coming to the the Book of Psalms with a question: this this human figure who reigns. Well, what if we ask the portrayal of the Savior or this figure of salvation? That broadens the question and it allows for the possibility of a figure of salvation who's more um, than who has more than one role or office. So maybe he's a priestly savior. Maybe he's a royal savior. Maybe something else. So um, I'll also mention, I I didn't use the word Messiah on purpose, not because I don't believe in messianic reading and stuff, but because um, if I use the word Messiah, people would tend to impose their view of what Messiah is from the outset. And the whole kind of, purpose of the work was to walk through these psalms individually almost inductively with the reader and discover along the way um, this the the portrayal of this figure so i didn't want to color that from the beginning so i used often in the in the body of the work i used figure of salvation as a general term um, or savior or this kind of thing and um and then at the end we can talk about messiah and it also kind of circumvented the debate about whether we should talk about Messiah. Well, let's just talk about figure of salvation. So so anyway, that's the first thing, that I reframe the question. So it's not so much portrayal of the king, although I really appreciate work others have done on that topic, but let's talk about portrayal of the savior, figure of salvation. And second, though, narrowing the scope, all this great work that's been done on the the Psalter's macro structure allowed me to test some of the particulars of various claims by narrowing the scope of inquiry to two really important Psalms in an early cluster in book five. So I chose one Psalm, I was drawn to Psalms 110 and 118 because both of them portray a human figure of salvation. And as a Christian, both of them are heavily quoted in the New Testament, although in the monograph, the focus is on Old Testament. But just why was I drawn to them? Well, they're They're both, 118 is the most heavily quoted psalm in the New Testament. And 110.1, I think, is the most heavily quoted verse in the New Testament, all with reference to Jesus. So, so in the case of Psalm 110, there's enormous disagreement um, amongst um, canonical interpreters about the portrayal of this figure. And I think that broadening the question to figure of salvation helped me make more sense of this figure's portrayal. And in the case of Psalm 118, it was interesting because there's almost complete radio silence about this, uh, the role of this figure in the shape of the Psalms discussion. So on 110, I I begin the chapter with this really nice looking chart. Isn't it nice when we have charts in our books? And I got this really nice looking chart and I've got you know, in one column, scholar, and I've got these list of scholars, and then portrayal of the king in book five, and here's what Wilson thought, here's what, you know, Leuenberger thought, and so on and so forth. And uh, when I when I went to Psalm 118, I thought, okay, this chart impulse, I'm hooked now, I want, to, I want another chart. And there was nothing, or very little. And in the canonical shape of the book of Psalms discussion, um, they largely skip over 118. They go right to the end, 132, 144, um, as royal psalms 110 132 144 is the three psalms that form critics view as royal psalms in book 5 but if psalm 110 is talking about a king or a human figure who brings salvation he ought to be a part of the discussion so by ne- by broadening the question i think psalm 118 comes into play it's obviously viewed as important by the new testament authors um and, and referring to Jesus by the New Testament authors. So, um, okay, then we're going to step back and we're just going to do Old Testament work. But I think that should be in our minds. And then by broadening the question, we, we're we allowed to kind of walk through and look at the portrayal of this figure in Psalm 118. And um, okay, um, I think that it's largely ignored in the discussion because form critics have labeled Psalm 118 a Psalm of thanksgiving. But since its speaker is almost certainly a king or a
0: figure of salvation in the very least,
1: um, I think he should be part of the discussion. So
0: anyway, tell us about your conclusions regarding the figure of Psalm 110. Okay,
1: well, again, I began the chapter by summarizing viewpoints, and I won't read all the names, but, uh, you know, Wilson, he's a priestly figure. He's not royal. There's an emphasis on the kingship of Yahweh in book five. Um, or in Psalm 110, sorry. Um, McCann, a king is promised an unexpected priestly status instead of a renewed royal rule. Um, and then you can go down the list, um, and I won't read them all, but, um, the king is presented in a passive cult mediation role with Yahweh as the primary actor. That's Luenberger, um, Ballhorn argues for a collective reading of David by the people. Um, Zenger, um, the reign of the king is subordinated under the universal reign of Yahweh, offering a new interpretation of Psalm 2. Um, Ballhorn um, does recognize he's a priest and a king. Mays talks about messianic uh, figure in Psalm 110. But anyway, um, I offered my own translation. So I started with kind of that summary. Then I offered my own translation of the psalm and this thorough canonical exegesis of the psalm as a whole. So I just walked through, I I don't know, 30 pages of commentary on Psalm 110, just seven verses. And um, I did that because let's test the particulars. Let's go deep. Let's go really deep and look at this stuff. And then I conclude the chapter with a look at the Psalm 110 and its canonical environs. And which included its local canonical environs in uh, in book five of the Psalms, all the way to its Hebrew Old Testament envir- canonical environs. So, in my commentary, I pointed out David, King David, is presented in the Psalm as the prophetic voice of the Psalm, and he's pr- he's declaring the words of Yahweh to David's Lord. So this this language of naum ne- yahweh is used in psalm one ten one and that's the only time to my knowledge it's used in the psalms it's if I remember correctly it's used two hundred and sixty eight times I want to say in the book and the prophets. Na'um ne- yahweh naum ne- yahweh naum ne- yahweh at the end of prophetic oracles and the, the old king James translated thus saith the Lord and um psalm one ten one because um we've got two different names for God and we we trans, uh, the translators often use says, says says instead of the idea of naum it's a noun first of all it's not a verb and it's the prophetic oracle or declaration of yahweh is i think uh, a more precise way of translating psalm one ten one um you know the Septuagint, um kurios i think it's amar uh, to my kurios so it's kurios twice and i don't quote me on amar but it's it's very much kurios is twice, but it's Yahweh and Adoni in the Hebrew, and it's Naum, not Amar. Um, Amar is Hebrew, so the Septuagint is not saying Amar, but you know what I mean. Anyway, um, so um, there's a lot there, isn't there, in Psalm 110. 1. It's the voice of David, but David's the prophet in the Psalm, and he's declaring—he's reporting— a na'um of Yahweh to his and David's Lord. So um, David's Lord then is the subject of Psalm 110. And I do thorough canonical exegesis. And I, I note that this figure is presented as a human royal figure who reigns. A cosmic figure whose throne is to the right of Yahweh. So he's far greater than David. He's a protected figure who experiences Yahweh working for him. He's a conquering figure who acts in the strength of Yahweh to defeat his enemies, verses 2, 3, and 7. And he's a priestly figure in the manner of Melchizedek, verse 4. And then, uh, because some people want to say that the portrayal of the Messiah in Book 5 is, is um, democratized to the, to the people as a whole, there's a the messianic people, um, Barbaro notes that David or David's Lord is, is not read collectively in Psalm 110, but David's Lord in verse 1 and your people in verse 3 are read side by side, and so they're distinct. You've got David's Lord and David's Lord's people. And so um, you've got this royal, cosmic, protected, conquering, priestly figure who set forth as the greater son of David to come, is what I argue and just through walking. Um, Probably the most surprising discovery in my survey, the secondary literature, is the idea of this royal priestly figure was not a puzzle for earlier interpreters. And so uh, the canonical interpreters, with the exception probably of Ballhorn and maybe Mays, but the majority of canonical interpreters, especially the ones um, who want to say that the Davidic covenant is broken and failed and and book five is wisdom and a personal approach to Yahweh. Those ones tend to really minimize um, the figure in Psalm 110 and want to just go, oh, unexpectedly, he's actually a priest. He's not a king. And um, But it seems that he's reigning at the right hand of Yahweh on the throne of the cosmos. That would, that would suggest to me royal and greater than David language. And David's calling him his lord. That's pretty big. And... Um, but when you read the history of interpretation, so-called pre-critical scholars all saw king and priest. And get this, critical scholars, like historical critics, all saw king and priest. So it's it's canonical interpreters who want to argue for competing redactional frames that have more of a puzzle about the figure um, than history of interpretation. So um I just think that those scholars, although I really appreciate their stuff, I'd suggest and hopefully humbly suggest that they've imposed a minimizing of the royal portrayal of the figure in Psalm 110 and muddied the interpretive waters. And But it, I don't want to throw out the canonical approach in light of this misinterpretation on this one point, but I hope that my reading... Um, gives fresh insights for people to consider. So um, I, I conclude with Anderson. Israelite interpreters, even in the face of harsh realities of history, never surrendered the hope for a coming monarch of the Davidic line who would rule as God's vice regent. So, and I would suggest that it also includes a priestly element for the figure in Psalm 110.
0: How does Psalm 118 contribute to the idea of the Davidic king's return in Book 5?
1: Okay, well, the first thing I did was question whether the figure in Psalm 118 was indeed a king, um, because he's not called a king. And so, although many people, and I'd suggest that the majority, if there's over 50% of interpreters have argued he's portrayed as a king, but what I suggest early in the chapter is that, why don't we walk through the psalm in detail and gather clues? I think that's that 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 inductive impulse in me from that first year Bible college. Um here I am done twelve years of of schooling and fourteen years as a pastor and and I'm uh, I'm I'm returning to that is so important. And uh so let's let's walk through and um I hope that the fresh depth encounter when we do thirty or thirty five pages of canonical exegesis helps paint his portrait. So um in the end, my analysis agreed with work by Jamie Grant, others, and they argue that the figure of salvation in Psalm 118 is portrayed as a royal figure, a new David. Um, it was the role of the king to lead the victory procession from the battlefield, and um, and that's what the figure does in Psalm 118. Um, who but the king? You think of um, you think of corporate solidarity between the king and his people. Who who but the king? in the words of uh, Peter Gentry, who but the king can say, I am Israel and I'm an individual. Um, and you've got that in Psalm 118, that he's, this individual salvation is caused for corporate worship, a praise of Yahweh. And uh, he's the most important person in the accompanying army. But um, a scholar named Hikaru Tanaka, he was a classmate of mine. He was working on his THM when I was working on my PhD. And uh he did work in Isaiah, and he um, he talked about that the figure in, in Isaiah is both royal, just royal or Davidic, but also had this mosaic element at the beginning and end of the book of Isaiah. Uh, look for look for his work in the future; it'll be it's it's great stuff. Um, I I I argue along the way that because the the figure of salvation, Psalm one eighteen. Um leads the victory procession from the battlefield. He's um his salvation is cause for national celebration. Um he, he's portrayed as a king, but then his words at the end of the psalm, um, he's quoting the psalm of his song of Moses, Exodus 15, and which is also Isaiah 12, second Exodus language. So um, and so if if readers of the Old Testament aren't approaching the book of psalms innocently to to um to echo robert wallace's work on the psalms but they're they're reading it in light of the law and the prophets um well we've read the law and the prophets and we know that the book of deuteronomy 18:15 to 18 taught us to expect a prophet like moses to come and if, there, if there's eschatological angst at, at this time in Israel's history, that Yahweh will intervene, Deuteronomy 31 to 10, and he'll do it through a greater son of David to come, 2 Samuel 7, or a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18, whom Deuteronomy 34 says he hasn't come yet. And, uh, and so I suggest that Psalm 118, there's this eschatological ethos And the the psalm sketches a figure who functions as a new Davidic king and a new Mosaic prophet. And so in this cluster, the early portion of Book 5 of the Psalms, this royal prophet to come is ultimately portrayed as Yahweh's agent who will accomplish full deliverance for the people of God. And so um, then if I may, Michael, uh, just to combine 110 and 118, because in the conclusion I do that, um, when when they're compared— the figure of salvation in 110 and 118 are compared. Lots of points of overlap emerge, but complementary features emerge. So according to Psalms 110 and 118, this savior is the one whom David prophesied about, whom David called Lord, who sat enthroned as king at the right hand of Yahweh on the throne of the cosmos, and who was a priest in the manner of Melchizedek. He, he accomplished victory in the strength of Yahweh, 118, 5-18, as king, he led the victory procession from the battlefield and into the temple to, re- to lead a responsive song of thanks, 118, 19 to 28. And in that responsive song of thanks, he his words exhibited resonances with a prophetic mosaic figure, and see especially verses 5, 14, 15, 16, and 23. So just to conclude, um, in the context of the final editing uh, of the book of Psalms, Um, when there was no king on the throne of David, and when the broader Old Testament canon had taught God's people to hope in a coming prophet like Moses, a royal son of David. And you got this prophetic word in Zechariah 6, 9-15 about a royal priestly figure. I suggest it makes sense that a multifaceted figure would be portrayed in these two key psalms near the end of the book of Psalms. And in the final form of the book of Psalms, this figure emerges as an eschatological figure of salvation who encompasses many hoped-for figures from across the Old Testament in one person as the one who's going to bring about a full-scale deliverance for the people of God. And uh, anyway,
0: I stopped there in the book because um, the focus was Old Testament, so... Ian, before we let you go, would you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your family, and perhaps give us a word about any other projects you're working on?
1: Okay, great. Thanks, Michael. Um, well, I, um, I I was blessed to be able to do the bachelor's, master's, and PhD, but in between all of them, I pastored, and so did the BTH, did a pastoral internship for two years, uh, downtown Toronto, did the master's, pastored for six years with no intention of doing a PhD, um, along the way, as I was pastoring, uh, a desire to do a PhD grew in me, but I, I I didn't want to use a pastorate as a launching point or a stepping stone or anything, so I wasn't even overly thinking about it, but the Lord just brought about the right circumstances that this is the time is right, and, and I believe he called me into the PhD work. But during those years as a pastor, um, there's lots of great work on New Testament, and just this... Christ-centered reading of the whole Bible. There's great stuff, Goldsworthy, Donis. I could name lots of people, um, but there's still more work to be done. So there's that desire um, grew in me. Um, I'm an ordained pastor in the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptists in Canada. Um, I served for in pastoral ministry for 14 years. Uh, prior to transitioning, now I serve Christ in the classroom. Um, I'm I'm associate professor of Old Testament and Hebrew at Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario, Canada, and uh, so I can rightly brag that I am a Cambridge professor. Um, I have a friend who teaches at Oxford, so I can uh, <laughs> I can counter with that. Um, anyway, uh, Natalie and I have been married for 15 years. Uh, we've been blessed with two kids. Caleb is at the time of recording; he's a few weeks away from turning 14. And Emily, at the time of recording here in December 2019, she's a few months away from turning 12. And just God's given me the heart of a pastor and an academic. I just, as a as a as a pastor, I realized I liked going deep into academics more than my friends. <laughs> so, which is part of the reason for the PhD and the desire to really, um, really focus my, you know, for however many days the Lord gives me, my focus my, um, ministry in the classroom, uh, from, you know, maximal effectiveness, given my gifts and personality. Um, other projects, um, I've got an article on the use of Psalm 118 in the new Testament. So I'm kind of extending that that's coming out at the time of recording this week, actually in the journal of the evangelical theological society. Um, so that I got another article, um that's hopefully for this summer in the use of Psalm 118 in the Gospel of John. So the Jets article is Psalm 118 in Matthew and the this next one is Gospel of John and um a couple other little articles on the go but the next big project I'd like to tackle and I've started to outline is an introduction to the book of Psalms kind of reading the Psalms, you know, theologically exegetically um and also canonically and christologically. And so I, as I read these introductions to the Psalms, there's lots of great work that's been done, but I haven't seen anyone bring all that under one umbrella, kind of a seminary level textbook or pastors or thinking lay people, but that's, that's like cutting edge. So, um, that's for free. I, I, I hope to no, no contract at this point. Um, just working on proposal and stuff like that.
0: Well, thank you so much, Ian, for taking the time to be with us. Okay. Thank you so much. All right, friends, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.